I want to pray before we get started. God, thank you for gathering us together and the words that we sang today. Sometimes we just sing things without really knowing what they mean. We're really thinking about how they mean, but those lines that you make beautiful things out of us, you, you turn the things that are broken and um, falling apart and you make them beautiful. God, this morning is a message about our insides sometimes being falling apart. We're asking God, God today that you would just point out those things in our lives that you want to make beautiful again uh, this morning and guide our time. Your name, amen. I was at a wedding a couple of years ago, and it actually was a rehearsal dinner for a wedding, and it was out at this beautiful golf course, uh, country club um, setting, um, sunset. I mean, it was perfect. Uh, We're having uh, a meal out on this golf course area, and I noticed, I overhear a conversation um, about from an older gentleman and a younger gentleman. The younger gentleman is holding a book. Okay, he's at a wedding rehearsal dinner, and he has a book with him, um, which is not, you don't normally do that. You don't normally bring a book to something like that. And the gentleman asks him, hey, what are you reading? You know, and the guy says, oh, I'm not reading this. I wrote this. And then it got awkward. I mean, he, he brought something that he had created. He brought something that he had done. And it was kind of like a show and tell thing, although that wasn't the point of the day. The point of the day is the bride and groom and celebrating them. And this guy brings a book he had written, um, probably in hopes that someone would ask him, hey, what are you reading? I didn't, I'm not reading this. I wrote it. And then it just, you know, that's just kind of, oh, wow. And then you have to really kind of engage with that. Well, um, I was just like over in the corner laughing at this. And, and it's just one of those deals where when I was thinking about, like, that's like a don't be that guy thing, right? Uh, don't be that guy that brings something that they're proud of to, to, to flaunt themselves to a, a wedding, um, or really to anything, right? I mean, I mean, ultimately we can see there's something insecure right there uh, about this guy that he's got to bring something to a wedding. And, and then I started thinking about that. I'm like, well, there's, there's a chance that we all do this in some way or another. We try to get something in on a conversation or try to, try to get something that we've done or accomplished out, you know, for the world to see. I mean, there's, there's something in us that wants to be known, that wants to be accepted and loved and, and celebrated. And it's a real human thing, right? But, but when it, the human kind of thing kind of mixes with religion, it gets even weirder. This last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and some of you uh, maybe come from a tradition that uh, celebrates Ash Wednesday and kind of uh, brings that into your life. Ash Wednesday is a tradition that really goes back to Pope Gregory, like 6th century, kind of started there, but it really kind of formalized in the 11th century, and, and it's a way of, it, it's the Old Testament talks a lot about ashes and, and fasting and mourning and repentance and this idea that um, 
just ahead of Easter, this Lenten season, that, that as, as the community of God, we would humble ourselves and repent and, and just really kind of focus in on our, our mortality and, and, and our brokenness. And it's just really beautiful and powerful. Unless you do Ash Wednesday and put the cross of ash on your head and then take a selfie and post it to the world, right? I mean, it just kind of defeats the purpose. I was listening to a radio show on my way somewhere this week, and they were talking about Ash Wednesday, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't K-Love. It was, you know, it was like a, or like a regular radio show. And, 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 and the, the announcers are talking about, well, what are you giving up for Lent? And they're just kind of making all these jokes. And one guy's like, well, I finished all my Girl Scout cookies, so I'm going to give up Girl Scout cookies for Lent. Like he finished off the whole sleeve of Thin Mints the night before so that he could say, I'm going to give up Girl Scout cookies for Lent, you know, and everybody laughed and they're like, that's a good one. And, and it's just a funny thing. Like when we talk about worth and identity and then we drag in religious practice to it, we've been in this series called Upside Down Kingdom. And what we're doing is, is looking at the words and teachings of Jesus and finding out how really upside down they are. Not just for first century Palestine, but for our time. And if we claim that we follow Jesus, we really follow a, an upside down king. Someone who chooses to do different things differently than a normal, powerful kingship would work and kingdom would operate. And we began with the Beatitudes and blessed are the poor and, and these things that are, just don't sound like they're really how it's supposed to go. But that's how Jesus intends it to go. We talked about murdering people with our, with our thoughts. We talked about anger. We talked about our words. We talked about those things. And we talked about how you can't separate uh, your worship of God from all the other relationships in your life especially the ones that aren't going so well. That there's something about leaning in on those relationships that has to do with our relationship with God. That it's all together, it's holistic. Well, today Jesus gets into another kind of relationship, and that's the relationship we have with ourselves. That it's not just an outer world, it's also an inner world. There's something about the deepness of our own soul and our own identities that come out in play when it comes to religious practice. So we talked about this idea in Matthew 5, 20, that, that Jesus actually says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, law, the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And we kind of freaked out about that a little bit. And we said, well, what does that mean? Does it mean I have to do all this very religious stuff? And no, Jesus is just saying, no, your righteousness is everything. Your, your relationships with everything. We, we wrote this definition out and it goes like this. Righteousness means community life with all the relationships in our life, with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the rest of creation. Well-ordered, full of shalom, all things flourishing as God designed them to be. That's righteousness. That's what we're shooting for. That's what Jesus wants us to be shooting for. So Matthew, beginning of chapter 6, we're going to focus in on one verse. And then Jesus has three different um, illustrations to uh, make his point on this first verse. 
Okay, you ready for this? Here we go. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's the, the main teaching for today. That's kind of where Jesus is focusing, and then he has three different things. Remember, he's, he's teaching the disciples. He's got the disciples around him, the 12, and then there's people listening in, crowds of people listening in, and the acoustics of this hillside made it uh, able to do that. A couple of the words here that we want to go through, it says, be careful not to practice. And a few weeks ago, we talked about practice and teach these things. And Jesus actually gave a charge to the disciples. And, and he says, you need to practice and teach what I'm about to tell you. No, not just learn it, not just memorize it, not just know it, but practice it. Like work this out in your life. Like put it to work and teach it. But here he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness and this word righteousness right here, he's talking about the righteousness that the Pharisees uh, leaned in on, this, this kind of uh, law-keeping righteousness. Do not practice this law-keeping righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Don't, don't show this off. Don't make this a public thing. He says, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And, and this reward thing, you know, as, as in our culture, we just think that, you know, it's something you get for something you do. In their culture, it's a very honor-shame thing. And so you would honor people, or you would honor your family, you would honor your, or shame your family depending on your behavior. So the idea behind this, Jesus is saying, is you have the opportunity to bring honor to your Father in heaven. And that's part of your reward. That's part of the, the, the reciprocation of it is that your father actually, that is bringing honor to someone is what brings you reward in this culture. He says you will not have that reward because you're really kind of trying to get it for yourself. And so he, he Verse, uh, verse 2 really begins the first kind of illustration, and we'll go through these quickly. It says, when you give to the needy, okay, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, there's so much happening here. Notice that he says in verse two, it's when you give to the needy, not if. Okay, let's just start there. I mean, as a, as a good Jewish person who's living, I mean, remember this is Galilee. We talked about the gospel triangle. He's, he's teaching up in this area uh, of the Galileans that they are very serious about following Judeo uh, values and, and following the teaching of the Torah. And they're, they're, they're very serious about it. And so ingrained in this culture is giving to the needy. 
I mean, we see this uh, all the way into the, uh, all the way back in the Old Testament when, when we talk about harvesting the edges of your field and that you would leave some of the field for, for, the, for the poor and the widow and the orphans and the foreigners. And we, we actually see this realized in the, in the book of Ruth with Naomi and Ruth actually gleaning around the edges of the field because Boaz was taking it very seriously. This idea of the poor among you, uh, the kindness to the poor was considered a religious duty. It's part of who you were in following Yahweh. Proverbs says that he who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Proverbs uh, 14 says this, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, for their God. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Scriptures refer to God as the defender of the widow and the poor. And and even there's a passage in Matthew that a lot of people take um, and and use in in interesting ways. There's this uh, parable of the sheep and the goats. Have you heard of this? And Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. That actual parable is not because someone didn't pray a prayer. That parable is in place for those who uh, do not uh, take that serious duty of, of keeping their word on, 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 on helping the poor. That's where that comes from. And yet we've kind of co-opted it and said, oh, sheep and the goats, you know where you're going to go when you die. <laughs> and so... This whole idea of being serious about the poor was just ingrained in their lives. In fact, it says that, you know, if you, you can't just give to them, there, there's a chance that you could actually help a poor person save face and you would loan them the money. You would loan them what they would need and you would give them time to repay that. And it, that's why we get this in Matthew 5, 42. It says, give to the, the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is earlier on, this idea that yes, uh, th- this exchange that happens, this face-to-face encounter that happens that you actually lean in on what their need is and, and decide, maybe I give to them, maybe I loan to them. But this idea is, this is part of what it means to be the people of Israel. Now, by the end of the first century, we have records of communities having these uh, ways to gather funds for the needy. And so there would be a couple of people assigned to go around and, on, uh, and collect money for those who are in need and disperse it on Friday, which is the day before the Sabbath, so they could be prepared to have what they needed for the next week. And people would come around, and so it could be that Jesus is kind of noticing this happening, and, uh, and people showing up, they see the two guys like coming around like the ice cream truck, um, and they're like, rush out there, oh, I want to give, <laughs> you, know, to, you know, and there'd just be this big moment, you know. Uh, we see uh, Jesus talks about trumpets, and there's some scholars that actually think that um, some religious people would actually have little trumpets on their belts, and they would pull these trumpets out when they give, and they would actually, you know, toot their own horn. 
Some actually, some scholars believe that there was this chest uh, in the synagogue that was kind of shaped like a trumpet. And they would take, uh, and you would, you would throw your coins in there and make this loud sound that people would go, oh, look, he's giving to the needy. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. And Jesus calls them fake. You know, hypocrites weren't bad. They were play actors. They were people that wore masks and acted. But that word becomes something that we know, right? We know what that means. It means you're not really on the outside what you are on the inside. It means you're putting something off. You're, you're showing us something that you want us to see, but that's not really you or me. You know, it's interesting about that is it always just like presenting this false identity of ourselves and the trip is this it's easily it's easy to kind of get trapped in this because it's easy to despise the hypocrisy we see in other people but it's much harder to see how complicit we are in it right and i think that what i've noticed in my own life is that the, the fact is that usually the hypocrisy that we spot in other people, that we're so irritated by in other people, ends up being typically a version of the hypocrisy that I'm struggling with myself. And that's the, the hard part, right? That's the part that gets really terrifying. And sure, there's those that know they're outwardly, do, they know they're doing this. I mean, it's their intention to deceive and it's their intention to act one way. And yeah, there's sure, there is that going on. But, but a lot of the people that Jesus encountered really didn't really know. They really didn't cognit- cognitively just, uh, just make that decision that this is what I'm going to be. There was just this cultural pull and this, this thing. They just kind of stumbled into hypocrisy accidentally. And so this should be a warning to us, right? So his second illustration is about prayer. And he says in verse five, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. There it is again. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Be unseen to pray to your father who's unseen is the idea. Now, Jesus wasn't like throttling anybody that prayed in public. He was just this idea of praying in public in order to be thought of by others in a certain way is what Jesus is digging into. And he's talking about this reward of having people believe that you are further along and kind of more put together than most, right? That's a real danger of doing what I do. And hopefully if you're around long enough, you realize that I'm just as much of a screw up as you are. I just get to talk about it in front of everybody. (laughs) And just catalog through some podcasts and you'll find out what a moron I am. But here's the thing, that, that this is... This is this Greek word actually means to like hide out in this inner room, this storeroom, this this just get alone, to be secret, to 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 let your inner self, okay, come out. 
See, what prayer does is it doesn't change God's mind necessarily. Prayer changes us. And if the real deep inner you doesn't come out, right? If the, if the external, the public you comes out, well, that's really not what God wants to change. That's not what this is all about, right? There's a guy named Gordon McDonald, and he wrote a book called Ordering Your Private World. It's one of my favorite books. It's long, it's been around for a while, and I would encourage you to get it. But there's this idea of who you are when no one looks. No one's looking at you is this, is this idea that Jesus gets at. This deep, real, inner you. Then Jesus goes on a little bit more about prayer. And next week, we're going to kind of get into the Lord's Prayer, which is in this passage too. But he goes on and he says, and when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, which I think is, I mean, he's not like, he's not ripping the pagan. It sounds like he's making fun of them, but there's this idea in pagan worship that the louder you went and the longer you went and you could kind of conjure this experience up with the God you were worshiping. I mean, this actually happened to us. We were on a missions trip to Mexico and we were out doing this kind of outreach thing and we had balloon, our group was just pretty chill. We had balloon animals. We're talking to the kids, we're playing soccer. And then there's this program happening. And some of you were on this trip, you remember this. Um, and it got so intense. And the, the, the evangelist on this, he was screaming into the microphone and praying and praying and praying. And he started to call us out. Us, us gringos, you know, we're not praying loud enough. And if we pray louder and if we pray faster and more intense, then the Holy Spirit will show up. And we're like, that's not how it works. And so Jesus said, oh, babble on like the, like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And this idea of these many words is this, this long, drawn-out deal, right? This, this long, expository deal of praying. I, at our wedding, Angela and I, um, we had a guy pray at our wedding, and he just went for it. Ever. Like, it was just like, dude. And Angela's like, hurry up. I want to get to the honeymoon. And I'm like, I don't blame you, babe. But uh, <laughs> you knew that was coming. <laughs> Anyhow. But it raises two questions. First, what kind of, what is this babbling all about? This idea of speech with tedious length that this is somehow going to get God's approval. We have, we have this parable of the tax collector um, and the Pharisee and how they prayed. And Jesus tells this story. And, the, and if, you, if you count the words in Greek, there's 33 words that the Pharisee uh, prays and the tax collector prays seven. 33 to seven. It's a pretty good little football score right there. I mean, it's like he wins, right? The Pharisee wins. And then the final one is this, when you fast. Remember, these are when, not if. Jesus is just assuming that this is part of who you are as someone who follows God, that, that God is in the center of your life. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, 
put oil on your head and wash your face so that you will, it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You know, fasting in the Old Testament was about repentance. It was about mourning. It was about all these things that I think as Americans we try to avoid. It's just something we like to avoid. It's not convenient. It doesn't feel good. Fasting is this idea, this practice that brings us a little bit more dependent on God, listening to his voice, coming closer to God. It's not going on a hunger strike so that God will act. And it's not a biblical fad diet either. (laughs) It's purifying our hearts. It's spending time focusing on God. It's learning how to deny the physical in order to grow more spiritual. But it's not meant to like get everybody to look and see how spiritual we are. It's this inner heart yearning, pleading for God that just needs to be here. Just needs to stay close. Now, in the Old Testament, um, communities would do it together. See, in the Old Testament, we have a lot of different names for God. One of them is El Roy, the God who sees. And we see this in Old Testament stories like Abraham and Sarah. And how she is just pleading with God for a son. And God says, I am El Roy, the God who sees. I see you. I see you in your pain. I see you in your brokenness. I see you in your desperation and crying out for me. I see you in your secret acts of love and giving and praying. I see you. This idea that Jesus is getting at is that there's this audience to honor God as just an audience of one. That idea of that we honor God with our lives, the in, inner part of us. Um, and, and Jesus is really digging in, in, into motivation and intention. And how that corrupt side of us, that inside of us, that private secret self of us, is, is yearning to be known and loved and accepted And then when you mix that with religion, it gets really toxic. It it actually starts to talk, make everything toxic around you. Now, the reward that Jesus is talking about is living in God's world, God's way. That's the reward. That there's this right relationship with God, with others and ourselves, that if we lean into that, it's actually where life begins to really flourish. Even if you feel like your life is falling apart all around you, and things aren't going the way you would like them to go, and your dreams aren't coming true, and the finances aren't all in order, and your kids are still difficult, and relationships with in-laws, and all those things. Like, God says that step into this, step into this idea that everything can begin to start to, uh, to work uh, in a beautiful, messy way 
if you just pay attention that the whole of your life is what I want to be a part of. Now, this idea that you and I need love and need acceptance and need, uh, um, we need to be known. And, 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 and some of that is just such a deep level and we just, we don't really know how deep it goes. Uh, many of you have been involved in this uh, thing we do called faith walking. And at the recent retreat, we had a slide put up and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, have Angela put this up. It's this idea that all of us walk around our lives and there's potentially three different versions of us. There's the public self that people see, you know, pretty put together. Um, you know, we, we're pretty determined or all those things. And then there's the private self and this is the, the self that maybe a few people know. Maybe your spouse, maybe your kids. But then there's that part of you that is, yeah, you might not even know it. And that part of you that might be kind of broken just enough that begins to act out in ways that are pretty unhealthy, looking for attention, looking for significance, lying to get ahead, using religion to do that, using um, relationships, using people, manipulating whatever it is. And And what I'm getting at in all of this is that Jesus actually wants to cure the root, not the branch, not what's seen by everybody. Jesus doesn't want to make you more religious. Didn't Jesus didn't come to start a religion? Jesus actually came to cure us, to, to, to heal us at the deepest places in our lives, not the religious places. He didn't come and die so that you would listen to Caleb and say corny Christian phrases. He came to heal you at the deepest level the places you don't even know yet you need healing and and, and rescue. See, this idea of righteousness being about not just our relationship with God, not just about our relationships with each other, but our relationship with ourselves, like the real self, the real you. And and really what the goal is in discipleship, what what is it to be like, more like Jesus, is to make all three of those the same person. That your public self is your private self. That your private self is your public self. And I know that absolutely terrifies some of us, but this idea all the way back in Genesis that the first thing that happened when sin entered the world, that when when Adam and Eve decided to, to go against what God had for them was the first response in their life was to hide. Was to hide, to run, to hide. And we're a collection, and the more you hang out with this place, you'll realize it's always difficult, but we're a collection of hiders. We're, we're a community of people who, who hide. Um, it's just natural, it's a default. It's a default for us to have kind of a secret self, a, a private self, but it, we're hiders. And, and what we're trying to do in community is to come out. And to be real and to be fully alive, and to be authentic. And this is where we get back to that whole salt of the, 
earth thing. Can you imagine what it would be like to weekly gather with a group of people that were continually working on becoming just whole? That, and recognize that Jesus just didn't come to save us from our behavior sins, but actually came to, to heal us at, at the root level of who we are. That Jesus didn't come just to change your behavior, but he actually wants to fix that part of you that makes all that behavior happen. See, that's the gospel. That's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to die for us, die for us holistically, like, like not just for our sins, not just for the things like flipping a guy off on the way to work kind of stuff, but everything deeply in us that, that is broken. And there's hardly a thing more convicting for us than talking about our motives, right? Like when your motives are revealed, to the world, if we were to reveal our motives at every moment on a screen walking around in our lives, it would be horrifying. And we all struggle with motives. A 19th century Russian author wrote this. He says, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. There's this idea that even at, at, at someone who comes across on the outside as being good, we're still messed up at our core. Blaise Pascal said, a man, man is, is great insofar as he is wretched. This idea that there's just something broken in us that we are, we are what you would call uh, fully, uh, I mean, there's this idea that every piece of our lives is tainted with sin. Everything. And we live out of that as a default. And you throw religion in it, it doesn't help it. Doesn't fix it, it just covers it. And Jesus says, let's uncover it. Let's heal that. Let's come out of hiding. Let's not fake it anymore, you know? Let's trust the Father to love and accept us right here, right now, right as we are. And then no more games and no more pretending. Like this idea that sometimes we have when you, you're a part of church circles is that, that God is in love with a future version of you. And you're just hoping to get there. Now, we, we, we say, you know, good Christians, yeah, Jesus died for me, and blah, blah, blah. But we don't really believe it all the time. We actually believe that there's a future version of us that he's going to love more. <laughs> it's so wrong. Right now, in this moment, in your chair, with everything coursing through your life and your thoughts, and, and, and the doubt, the, the hardness, the, 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 the darkness in your heart, God loves you right now, in this moment. Of course, he doesn't want you to stay there, because freedom comes, right? There's, there's so much more freedom for us when we don't have to pretend anymore, when we don't have to fake it until we make it. 
See, this whole gospel thing is just more than a ticket to heaven. God doesn't come to just give you a ticket to heaven. He doesn't come just to save you from your sin, but actually for something. Something. This, this, this shalom, this flourishing life that God has for us. And so this morning, we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to communion together because this culminates on the cross and, and this culminates, this all kind of begins and we're getting brought back to it over and over again in community as we come to the table. The table is the signifi- uh, signifies this, this beautiful uh, moment that Jesus has with his disciples and, and he actually encourages us to continue. And the table is not just a, a remembrance It's not just a symbol. It's actually something we get to participate in with God. Every time we're together. And we bring all that we know of ourselves and all that we don't know of ourselves to the table. Because Jesus died for the you that you don't know about. And you're like, what are you talking about? I know everything there is to know about me. No, you don't. Trust me, you don't yet. There's going to be things you learn about yourself next year that you wish you never knew. There's going to be things you learn about yourself in the most difficult, painful, suffering, enraging times of your life that you wish you didn't know about yourself. And Jesus died for that too.